it, it's been a it's been a hot minute since I, we've been I around. I get it. I get it. You know, I I wouldn't want to record an episode with me either. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, we literally yeah, had to take an trying. entire month to rethink <laughs> all of our other options. We're like trying to stave off for so long. <laughs> MK Farmer win is the, the next one on the list. Uh, insert insert copyrighted sad song. Michael, it's an acapella you do like a uh, battle cry. No. <laughs> Body can save you now. Nobody can say that. <laughs> In the wise wisdom of Chris Evans, eat shit, eat shit, definitely eat shit. And the words of Hugh Jackman, go f*** yourselves. <laughs>I'm Project 422 Films. And we are live. I am StealthBot. And today we are joined by none other than MK Former Win. Would you like to uh, shamelessly self-plug yourself? Hi, I'm MK. I make videos on the YouTube. Go check them out. I make movies with toys. That's that's my bio on everything. I'm going to stick with it. Perfect. That was the most comprehensive introduction to any guest ever. Mom, be proud of me. I make movies with toys and somehow get paid for it. Wait, you get paid for this? Uh, occasionally, like once every two months, YouTube sends me a check and it's like, here you go. It must be nice. <laughs> it must be nice to have a couple of dollar signs. You know, there was a time you hadn't surpassed me in subscribers by like a couple thousand. Listen. It wasn't intentional, all right? I One day I had 700, the next day I'm at 3.5K. I might not be at 3.5K You are not at 3.5K yet, my friend. I, I might be being a little too generous. I'm at like, what, 3.2K? I haven't checked. 3.44. Yeah. So tell me, Daniel, what's our what's oh, on the outline God. today? Well, Michael, uh, I kind of wanted to like ditch the outline completely, but I'm pretty sure you wrote the lengthiest outline that could possibly course, exist for one of these course. episodes. Because, I mean, uh, we've been a little bit rusty. We haven't done this in a little while. Uh, we took a we took a mental health break in addition to getting our shit together. So we're no longer going to be releasing bi-weekly, but I think we might be releasing monthly, potentially. We'll see how it goes. Without further ado, we're going to finally get into the shit of it. For the previous episode, I did a little bit of an opening thought to kind of summarize what the episode's going to entail. So if you want to drop out from listening now, uh, you'll get at least an idea as to what we've talked about. We've mentioned that filmmaking requires knowing and operating within limits of some sort. In stop motion, they typically amount to the resources that we have. We discussed how there are numerous factors that go into how to actually film with those resources and apply them using various tricks and tips of the trade. In this installment, we're going to be exploring how those conversations from those episodes essentially cross paths here, since crossing different genre, franchise, figure, and even technological lines all tie into how to make the most of your resources and filmmaking techniques in your tool belt to make the best content you can make. So today or tonight, depending on whenever the hell you're listening to this, this is how to approach crossing the lines. Roll credits. The first point. We've mentioned how there is planning involved for every project, including the hunting and gathering for materials and constructing what story to share on screen, how to tell it. Some people wait until they have all of the things that they need. Others get things as they go, and some have everything detailed or written, 
while others just work with their imagination and run with it. Generally speaking, how much do you have in place before you proceed with a project, or does it vary from project to project? Whoever would like to go first. The, uh, obviously, the director of Crashed has to go first. Okay. Well, yeah, so, uh, like you said, it, or the end of the question, uh, it depends for me project to project, because, you know, some projects I just immediately rush into without any sort of thought, and then some I, I have careful planning, and it usually depends on whether or not I'm writing like an episode to a series or if I'm just doing like a one-off thing. Cause sometimes like uh, with some of my videos, if they're just one-offs, it's just like, I have this idea vaguely in my head about, Hey, I want to do this. So then I just kind of go into it. I just wing it on the spot. But then with some of my other content, you know, my more episodic series based stuff in order to keep continuity and know what I'm doing, I do. And actually like, you know, fully let me write through a whole script. Let me, a lot of times I, I may not fully storyboard, but I pre-plan shots, pre-plan ideas, get things set up more it, more in pre-production than if it's just like some one-off. Oh, hey, let me just do this for fun. Right on. Right on. All right, Daniel, your move. Well, this is my process, but you, I, I usually try to figure out what it is I'm trying to pull off. And if I'm going to be able to pull it off, uh, I try not to incorporate elements I don't yet have before I can get a hold of it. And... This makes me sound like a hypocrite because that's exactly what I'm doing right now while Under the Dark Episode 2 is in pre-production. Like I'm trying to write stories and include characters that I don't even have figures for or materials or sets for. But y you need to because it helps with everybody's best interest. It's for the episode's best interest. And, you know, when, when you have projects like that are ongoing, it's a bit of a juggle when you're trying to keep the momentum of keeping things fresh, whereas like ideas that you just come up with on the spot usually happen because of the things that you have. So it's all a matter of improvising and making the most of uh, what you have at that time and making sure it fits that vision in the best way possible without compromising because a lack thereof of a material might screw everything up. So a bunch of these other facets that come with being a very creative creator. <laughs> My answer is very similar to yours. Um, to keep it short and sweet, I would say that I kind of vary depending on the project. But generally speaking, I like to have a good amount of detail, almost as much as I can, of what I need before I work. And I also like to plan as much of it out as I can. So if I want to do a project, I might have a basic idea as to what it will be. But I don't try to flesh it out until I have all the resources necessary for it to be feasible for me to make it. So I have like a big Google Doc of every project that I would want to make. And whenever I think of a new idea, I think about whether or not I have the resources necessary to bring that idea to life. And depending on whether or not I do, that dictates how much detail goes into uh, the outline, the script. If I do storyboarding, which it depends on how simple or complex the project is, I tend to want to have as much of the resources in hand as possible because I don't want to craft my story around something that I might not be able to get in time for me to make the project happen. Or I might not want to like hold off on waiting to make the project because I'm waiting on one particular thing. Um, for example, I'm working on the Nomad Super Duper Cut right now, but I'm out of a Falcon because Deanna wanted to customize a Falcon figure and she didn't wait for me to get my replacement figure in 
before customizing it. So now I can't use Falcon. I have to work on other aspects of the story and the filming without Falcon uh, and prioritize my time. But I like to have at least a clear idea from the onset. And I like to have as many of the tools that I need to realize that idea and carry out that vision from the early onset. I like to have as much of that at the ready as possible. Should it change later on? Fine. But I don't like totally improvising or waiting to uh, sort of make things come to fruition. You obviously want to have a hand on every part of the operation, but being on your toes and being aware of these things as they happen and improvising on the fly is a great skill to have just in case something unexpected happens, like an impromptu customization. Yeah, with filmmaking, you have to kind of go in with the mindset that it might not work out. It probably won't work out exactly the way you envision it. That doesn't mean it'll be bad. It just means it'll be different. But still having at least an idea at the forefront can help. Uh, I was going to say, like, because uh, we all basically said it varied between projects. I feel like that is mostly a universal answer, because when it comes to, you know, filmmaking or just any form of art in general, but just making projects in general, it's never going to be the same. Like one production is never going to be the same as the other. I could use the exact same figures in the exact same set for making an animation, and I would still be a completely different ball game for each of them. Like no film I make, the process is the same because there are just different factors that affect different things. But the time, place, what you use, how you use it, what you're doing with it, all kinds of things. So I, I think it varying is a more universal response to it. Right. Because it's all up to chance when mm -hmm. you're working with a figure you've used before that worked perfectly fine when you were working with in the past and then it breaks. I've been experiencing this a lot with the Nomad Super Duper cut. There are some things that I'm keeping from the original shoot but having to reshoot other sequences, it it definitely feels like a bit of a different sort of mixed experience. Like it feels like there are some things that I kind of just did impromptu. And then there are other things where I kind of have to go back and recapture the magic from the past. It's like when TV shows or films have to do flashbacks, but they're shooting it with actors and sets and stuff that are existing in the present. The actors are going to look different. They might sound different. The sets might look different. The cameras might be different. There are a whole host of things that won't exactly line up, but you just kind of have to embrace the jank of it a little bit and just hope that people are invested in the story that you're trying to tell, regardless of that. Michael, you brought up how like the, you know, remaking videos and how, you know, things will cha change. And I, it's kind of like, you know, that that common phrase practice makes perfect. Everything you make is a practice for you and you're improving. So even if you made the same video back to back, Chances are there would be improvements. There would be differences. Even if you tried to make it exactly the same and you did back to back again, it's still going to turn out somewhat different. Well said. With that said, that was only what a single question. And oh. we, we, we were able to spawn an entire podcast out of one question. What's funny is I was thinking at first when I first answered the question, like, oh, God, I feel like we're going to end up like. I was like, are we rushing through this? Am I going too fast? And then we went on this whole like side tangent. About yeah, that's why we, we, we came back from our little hiatus, our little break with one of the most difficult outlines. So you're welcome. Tackling specifics from the, I'm joking. Speaking, yeah, speaking of the outline, <laughs> tackling specifics from the opening, as Daniel thought I sounded like, what an ass. Um, we all have worked with several different genre types. So typically in stop motion, you have your action, your drama and your comedy. But there are others, too. Is there any particular genre that you gravitate towards as a favorite to make? One that you feel plays to your strengths or hits your weaknesses? And 
are they all the same genre or is there a different genre for each of these categories? See, I think for me, for the most part, uh, when it comes to just like genre, I tend to favor more. I do like action more just because I like certain stuff. I, I very much a lot of my inspirations are very stylistic things like, you know, red versus blues action scenes or like Devil May Cry. The video game has very over the top action scenes. I just I enjoy making action. It's just fun to me. It's you know, I, I usually when I'm planning a video, I go, OK, what type of fight choreography can I throw in this? What kind of, you know, what different you uh, usually when I a video comes to my mind it's like oh i think of this character doing this cool thing all right let me do a video around that um but i i know as i also drift i tend to do a lot of unintentional like comedy like i i don't mean like i make something serious and it ends up comedic i mean like i don't go i want to make a comedic video but then when i'm coming up with videos i end up making comedic videos and i i feel like i work really well with like more slapstick style like visual comedy uh on camera gags and stuff like that so I feel like action and comedy are the two. And I think they go really well together. Again, I reference Red versus Blue as a huge aspiration. That's a that is a series that perfectly blends action and comedy into one thing. I, I, I do struggle a bit with, I, I think, in terms of, you know, weaknesses. I struggle a lot with, I guess, more horror and drama based because it's hard for me to, you know, use action figures in a way that like I always default to action and comedy. Cause I, it's, it's more, it's my comfort zone. You know, I, I want to definitely try and branch out a bit with horror and more drama type stuff with action figures. Just, just get out of my comfort zone a bit. All right, Daniel, your move. I mean, I'm, I'm partial to dramas and very serious character studies as opposed to where I originated from, which is a little bit more MCU style comedy action based and I think the best part about it is they it, working on either genre is both a weakness and a strength because, again, it all depends on what you're working on, whether or not it's comedy that's trying to be funny or comedy that just so happens to be funny because of the situation. As if, obviously the favorite now, since I'm working on Under the Dark, is something along the lines of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. You know, that, that trilogy was both funny in some aspects when it wanted to be and it was dark and gritty when it called for it so the most important part is like make making sure you're true to what you're trying to execute as a director and i felt that sure i worked on stuff like ant-man the black ant or captain america the super soldier very mcu but i just felt like my strengths were more in the serious side of things and very very stern very character driven very dramatic and had stakes that weren't undercut by a, a joke or a cheap gag or laugh so it, when working with humor on the other on the opposite end comedy and in, in under the dark it's it's going to be harder to tackle as opposed to like oh i'm trying to make them laugh because this is in the style and the aesthetic of the mcu so it has to be grounded in reality it's got to be serious you it has to be like a natural progression of how humor is in the real world it has to also have your identity and imprint on it so that it doesn't feel too distinct from your other projects that's how you know that that creator has been making something exclusive to them my, my favorite kind of depends so i enjoy action drama and comedy equally they all have different strengths and weaknesses to me and i i, I love indulging in all different kinds of content 
but there are aspects that I feel that come naturally with each, and there are also challenges that come with each, at least in terms of me trying to make them happen. Action is a lot of fun to envision, coming up with ideas and like imagining what could be, but it's really the hardest to execute. Like trying to come up with certain choreography, it could defy physics for all you know. It could defy the laws of gravity and you don't realize it while you're sketching out the storyboards or imagining it in your mind. But when you try to physically film it, you realize what the fuck was I thinking? Drama hits my feelings more than anything else, but it's difficult to translate that with action figures as uh, MK said. It's really difficult to evoke human emotions from these motionless sculpts, I guess. And sometimes right. they have like existing facial expressions on them, like angry or like happy, melancholy. You probably wouldn't be able to use that smirking face in serious scenes because it's evoking that one emotion and it takes you out of it. Unless that's the plan, right? Unless you want to evoke humor in unless the midst if that's, of a serious... Unless if you're specifically trying to uh, evoke that uh, what's it, cognitive dissonance. But then you have neutral faces... Or faces that are hard to come by. Like there are different comic versions of characters versus live action versions of characters. And there's going to be a little bit more of a connection between a face that looks more photorealistic versus a face that's clearly cartoon based. So that's also difficult with drama in particular. Um, and then you have comedy, which is probably the easiest on all these fronts. But trying to be funny doesn't mean you'll land the punchline. You probably won't, if anything. So if I had to pick... Drama is probably the one that I enjoy viewing the most because it's the one that's least done. A lot of animators tend to focus on action-based scenes. They tend to focus on uh, how to get the adrenaline pumping with their choreography, with their stunt work. But drama is something that's a little bit harder to come by given how difficult it is to pull off, especially when you try to relate drama to your life experience. I've talked about Nomad and how um, like I'm trying to pull real-life uh aspects of my emotions into that story. I'm trying to relate things in my past to that sort of conflict. So I really enjoy plucking those experiences and sprinkling them into this fictional narrative. Um, but comedy plays to my strengths as a slapstick theater actor. I'm always playing comedic relief when I'm in theater uh, most of the time, even though I also love to dabble in the uh, dramatic side of things. And Action is probably my favorite in terms of just imagining the possibilities, but it's definitely a weakness in terms of, you know, I imagine possibilities that are rendered impossible in practice. So, yeah, that's that's my answer on that one. I, I think, you know, as a YouTube content creator, it is good to kind of be like a jack of all trades with genres, because even if there's something you're good at, even if you're really good at something, like even if you're, you know, you are the best there is at action. You eventually, you know, you can only do it so much before you it does get stale to your audience. So I think you do need to swap up your genres. You want to try it like even me. I'm not the biggest drama person, but I, I occasionally try to experiment with things like Rorschach or horror with like the Brett's death. Like there are content that I make that I'm like, this is not what I'm used to. This is not what but I want to try it just to change up the flow a bit. Give something else there so that, you know, it doesn't what I'm good at doesn't get stale. Exactly. You don't want to get pigeonholed or typecast into mm -hmm. doing the same thing over and over again, which as a theater actor, that's something that I've encountered a lot. Like, it's like, oh, you played this comedic relief character. Here's a different role, but it's almost exactly the same thing. When I'm making content, 
like when I'm creating, I might make a dance video. I might make a music video. I might make stuff that's a little bit more outside the box compared to your typical, uh, your throwdown, your like, uh, your uh, beat 'em up action type film. But that doesn't mean I don't want to occasionally make one of those. Like, Batsy v. Danvers was very much kind of MCU style where it's really indulging in the comedy. But Nomad was getting down to the nitty and gritty and dirty of things. I really wanted it to be sort of intense, at least with its fight scene. And I also wanted it to be very, you know, emotionally resonant. I wanted people to really at least sort of understand where these characters are coming from, from an emotional background. I want them to understand that, well, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, Steve was fine after Civil War. He Like, he wrote that letter and everything. But what if he wasn't? What if, what if like, a real human being, there was something more palpable and tangible with how he was actually feeling? Because something like that kind of experience is traumatic, and there's a whole lot more to that than just, oh, I'm fine. There is grief. There is instability, uncertainty. And it's really cool as creators, we have the opportunity in our little space to sort of tackle those kinds of topics that uh, other media won't or can't for time or budget or whatever reason, contracts. So it's good to change things up and shake it up and not feel like you're only doing the same thing over and over again, because that's insanity. And what's the point of that? And your vision might change day of shooting versus what you had in mind for the script. An example would be for Batman Under the Dark Episode 1, where we cut to Gordon for the very first time. That entire scene where they're kind of just relaxed and uh, in in limbo while they're waiting for their next lead is very much... I had in mind that it was going to be a very dramatic, very quiet, slow burn scene. But in the edit, I was like, what if we get into the mind of Jim Gordon a little bit more? And what if we actually activated his psyche in the sense that the audience could hear and see what what he was thinking about? So I inserted a little bit, like I teased it, there was a hook, and then I revealed the jump scare. And the tension and and the release tactic was there. So, you know, uh, something that you might intentionally want to be dramatic in, hell, I want to say even the filming aspect, because I filmed that to be a very peaceful scene. In the edit, things can change, whether it's a horror element or comedic or or slow paced it's it's all got to work in service of a larger narrative and that's that's i figured that was what worked best for that particular scene yeah and while it's a conversation for another day of course um because we will hopefully tackle editing as a as a part of this production process you might be intending for one genre going into a project but in the edit or during filming, you might realize that there's potential for it to maybe be comedic or dramatic or uh, more adrenaline pumping and action intensive. Just because you have an idea for something on the onset doesn't mean that idea won't change and flow um, throughout that process. You might be intending for something to be very, very uh, gritty and down to earth and dramatic. And you might end up with something that might have more panache if you play up the comedy. So you never know. These ideas are subject to change. But it's cool either way that you can kind of cross all these different lines in terms of uh, the mood and the vibe and atmosphere. I I think even on paper, like you can plan something, uh, you know, in like, oh, I want to make this action video more serious. And then when you get to scripting it, you're like, all right, well, no, like 
all right, it flows better as a comedy. Like with my Bumblebee and Bruticus video, the original idea wasn't meant to be all that comedic. It wasn't, you know, it was just meant to be more of an action based thing. And then I got to scripting it and it, I was like, oh, no, this fits just the idea of this fits better as a comedy anyway. So I, I feel like there's any form of any stage of production. It can s- switch uh, a good when I was in high school and I took film classes, um, a teacher I really respected. He would always say, like, even in the editing phase, like, don't try to force a film to be something it's not like if a film is going somewhere that maybe that's not where you originally intended. Go with it. Don't try and force it to go on that the original track that you wanted it to be because it's going to hurt it. You know, it's it's yeah. not going to reach its full potential. It's good to keep an open mind. And in the in the edit process, which, again, we will tackle in a future episode. You might want to try different things out and tinker and experiment. Who knows? Maybe you might come to a point where it's like, all right, you might have multiple versions of the same project. Kind of like you might end up like with a Zack Snyder cut of Justice League or Justice League, depending on how you balance those elements in an edit. But Stay tuned for that conversation because that's uh and the, the that's final, for a later date, I think. The, the final thing I want to touch on for this point is that your imagination betrays you most of the time because what you see in your head is not going to be the same as what you see in the edit because it's like it's different. You know, it's not your what you see in your head can only be tangible with the materials that you have. But then you come to a point where you have to use your resources and on hand. And again, the improvising comes to play. It's one thing to have like the pacing of something happen perfectly in your head. And in an edit, it's like, this is really boring. So, you know, keep that in mind. Or it could be too fast. Exactly. You might not realize that your shots aren't long enough. Or you might realize Mm. that they're too long. So, another good thing to keep in mind. Um, I'm pretty sure all three of us have or intend to be working with Transformers, Marvel, and DC. But MK, you have explored way more than that too so take my question from before with this subject uh is there any particular franchise that you gravitate towards as a favorite to make one that you feel plays to your strengths or hits your weaknesses and are they all the same franchise or is there a different franchise for each of those aspects the strengths weaknesses and favorite so obviously you know i'm a primarily transformers animator even in my name my youtube channel name is you know mk former w1n um and so obviously for me, Transformers are what I gravitate to. Uh, and it's there's, it's more than just, you know, I like the franchise, although I absolutely love Transformers. It's just when it comes to the stop motion medium, Transformers to me, I find the easiest to make compelling in all sort of ways. Because when you're trying to use like a Marvel Legends, you're trying to convince people that this action figure is supposed to be a real person. But when you're using a Transformer, you're already using something that isn't real. So it allows them, it, it, there's less... I guess, mental gymnastics of going, okay, well, you know, this is a toy trying to be something in the real world where with Transformers, it's not trying to be something real. It's trying to be something, you know, that's fake. So I feel like it's easier to get audiences with Transformers. And for my kind of over the top style with things, even comedy, action, all that, I feel like that also helps with the fact Transformers, you know, robot based. I'm not trying to have a real person do things that they shouldn't be able to do. So I, I definitely gravitate more towards Transformers on all aspects. It definitely, uh, it very well goes with my style. It complements my style. 
compliments my writing and it's just it's fun for me to animate it gives me a lot i i can do a lot with them that i can't do with you know regular type like when it comes to regular figures however i do like to branch out a lot and i will say i'm also quite a fan of you know the halo mega constructs figures because again most of them are wearing you know in these suits of armor with aliens so there's still that you know like all right okay this isn't trying to be real and uh in the the lore of the series you know these are like super soldiers that can do over the top things again it fits with my style and complements my style of a lot of over the top stuff however i've noticed whenever i try and do more dramatic stuff i i do tend to gravitate more towards like real figures like uh rorschach from the dc collectibles line or like just marvel legends in general because i feel like if i am trying to bring you into something that's more you know dramatic more horror based i need to use something that is more realistic more like you know human face something that you can relate to a bit more that is a fascinating way to look at it i love that yeah i agree I didn't know if you were going to go into your point like immediately after that or if you were just Oh, okay, okay. I guess we're going into my... I mean, I can't really speak for this because, yeah, my priority right now is under the dark. And even then, you know, you got a clown prince of crime wearing makeup criminal type deal. And you have a very... Like, it's very in the real world. But you also got a guy dressed up as a bat and a guy with an eye patch on another guy with a with a clown mask so it's really hard to take those things seriously when it comes down to making people resonate with said property but i think it all it falls on the director's hands to be responsible for making sure that people are supposed to connect with something in the appropriate way they're supposed to connect with it but it's yeah it's a tricky thing and what i guess it's it's a balance. I don't really gravitate towards any specific uh, property just because, you know, you can take a guy wearing a Spider-Man suit just as seriously as a guy with a pair of glasses like anyone else would because it, it all depends on what's on paper, what's what you're writing in the script, how you direct it, and how you edit that thing. Is it slapstick? Is it dark? Is it scary? Again, it is a complete shot in the dark. You have to figure out where you're uh how how people are supposed to resonate with something that would otherwise be goofy which is why i kind of i i love directors like sam raimi who are able to mix comedy and 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 horror at the same time because it's like that's the sweet spot that you have to to hit and yeah that's the challenge that i i i gravitate towards the challenge more so than i do what is offering up the challenge so in terms of franchise it doesn't really matter so much to you like so you don't feel that your strengths as a writer don't cater to the tone and mood of say dc characters more than say marvel characters because because if yeah granted they're very different properties but i think if a if you wanted to do a dark character study for a marvel character it would resonate as well like uh, we go back to the mcu style of things but you could also take it the logan route or or Something like uh, Batman Forever could also be translated as a Joker type stop motion, mm-hmm. but it all depends on how you how you uh, form your artistic style and vision to what what you want to execute. Like if if you want to execute something seriously and you want people to take it seriously, you just make things work. You know, the, the person could be wearing a a banana suit, yet it could be a very serious character deep dive, but context is key all right 
So my answer is going to kind of tie into both of yours a little bit. Um, like MK, I was kind of known as a Transformers content creator, at least on the onset. Um, it, it's what put me on the map as a voice actor. It was the it was the toy line that I collected the most of. But over time, I became a Marvel fan actually as a result of my voice acting work and wanting to be a stop motion animator in that space, in that sort of uh, realm with more human characters rather than robot characters. So it's kind of like the inverse, the opposite of what Friendly was saying. I wanted to gravitate towards those more human characters. And even with my Transformers characters, I wanted to make them as human as possible. I wanted to make them as grounded and real as possible so you could really embrace their emotions and connect with them on a deeper level. And a lot of my character decisions with my Transformers characters were unintentionally inspired by character backgrounds from Marvel and DC a little bit. I kind of look at the Optimus and Magnus relationship from Transformers Rebels as a Thor and Loki kind of relationship. I look at uh, Drift and Deadlock. I look at that story as Bucky Barnes's story a little bit. I look at uh, I look at Evac's story as uh, kind of like Daredevil's story and the fact that he he was this like character. He was just trying to protect his own little sector of things, and then he kind of had to take matters into his own hands in order to do the right thing. He was kind of leading a dual life in a sense even though that's obviously not a plot point I got to in uh, Transformers Rebels. But I like Marvel more than Transformers, generally speaking, as a favorite, and I think it plays more to my strengths as a writer and as a creator due to my resource limitations and my history. Working with and collecting these human figures, it allows me to tell more human stories that are more authentic to experiences that I have or that others have that I know. Or experiences that I would want to have or I'd want others to have. Transformers hits my weaknesses a little bit because of the uh, costs and expectations for them. They're giant freaking robots and there's a lot of big bombastic things you could really do with them. And they're kind of larger than life, quite literally and figuratively. Um, I love the potential that they spark for action and all the different ways you could kind of make them human, at least in my imagination. But I'm not able to manage them as much as I used to be, at least, in terms of space and time. And Transformers kind of hinges on those uh, uh, th those possibilities for emotional interactions without the physical fights, uh, the flash of flare. They kind of rely on those bigger, those bigger, larger than life type set pieces. They don't really focus as much on the emotions. It's not really about that. They're action figures that are sold to kids because they could do really cool things. They could become vehicles or they could become giant robots or their puzzles in between. So it's not really about them being deep characters as much as they are just really colorful and really vibrant in a bunch of different ways. Um, DC is kind of on the same page as Marvel. So kind of like what you were saying, Daniel, with how it doesn't matter if it's a Marvel or a DC property so much as it is what mood you're kind of going for, what genre you're trying to tackle and approach with whatever character you have, because you could bend and contort these characters in a bunch of different ways. And it's kind of like the world's your oyster with that, um, at least in this uh, creative space. Human figures are capable of fun fights too, but they can also rely on that emotional 
component a little bit more than uh, these robotic characters that rely on the spectacle and set pieces. And they open the door for things like casual conversation or comedic beats that might feel out of place for robots. As long as you're trying to make content that resonates with people emotionally in one way or another, that's kind of the point. But it's more than okay to have a completely different take and perspective on this creator space. And that's what makes us so special. The fact that we're all so unique and we all have different things that we bring to the table. No one can create the same thing. Like within themselves, like we already established that there's no way to uh, create the same exact thing twice. But obviously different people won't be able to make the same thing either. They're kind of bouncing off you, Michael. You, you know, you talked about like Transformers being more spectacle. And that's another thing that like I have some fun, like a thing, something I'm planning down the pipeline is is I like the idea of also the challenge of taking a more spectacle, robotic, less human thing. And I do like, you know trying to humanize it and add you know there's a challenge there there's a fun there because it's it's it is a lot more difficult because this is a it is a toy line that is primarily designed to hey giant robots punch each other so there, there's there's fun trying pew, to pew, bang bang it. uh yeah. that's the that's the status quo that you kind of want to challenge with transformers mm-hmm. at least from my from my perspective and it seems like you're on your way to do that very same thing too the good news about this outline is that a lot of these questions are kind of like a similar question and we've dabbled into different things already. And obviously there's a lot to expand upon here, but let's try and knock them out. Different franchises such as Marvel, DC, Transformers, it might mean working with different figure lines. So Marvel has different manufacturer toy lines that represent their IP such as Hasbro's Marvel Legends, Mafex, Mezco, Minimates. Uh, Lego minifigures, SH Figure Arts, uh, Diamond Select Toys, and others. There are also different styles like the comic ones or the screen-based ones. Then Transformers has lines for different generations, like different franchises, featuring varied designs and aesthetics. And they also have like different classes, different scales. Uh, So you could, like, way back in the day, you could have the same character in Deluxe, Voyager, or Leader Class scale, or even the really smaller scale, like Cyberverse or Legends. Or you might be going from Studio Series to Masterpiece, or Generations to Masterpiece. So there are different subcategories within these different lines as well. So same question, we're just recycling it, repackaging it here. Do you have a favorite figure line to collect, to work with? Is there one that plays to your strengths and one that plays to your weaknesses? I definitely, I collect a lot of figures from all over the place. I think, I'm a, I, I need to split this question into two, basically, because what I like to collect is also sometimes a little different than what I like to work with. Like, for instance, one of my favorite collection I have is my movie-verse Transformers figures. I think they, I love the way they look. I love them to death. They look amazing on my shelf. However, when it comes to animation, I don't like using them as much uh, because movie figures are more complicated, have awkward proportions, awkward articulation. So there's not like when it, you know, it's not as much fun to animate Uh, in terms of like, and if keeping with Transformers, on the other hand, like Chug figures um, for non-Transformers fans who don't know what Chug is, that's classic Henkai universe generations. uh, That scale of figures is just kind of my go-to because it's a decent size scale because like, for instance, Masterpiece is way too big for me. Uh, they're just too heavy, too big, don't have the space where the scale of like the chug figures are perfect for me. They have the right articulation, the right balance. 
They're, they're a, I've never had a problem animating with figures from that line. I also, you know, I, I want to get into animating with Marvel Legends, but when it comes to like Marvel and real, uh, and Star Wars and stuff like that, I do tend to prefer to animate with more import figures like, uh, Mafex and SH Figure Arts just because, uh, the ratchet joints are sometimes a bit awkward for me to deal with in Marvel Legends figures. And in general, I do kind of prefer animating with non more human characters going back to the last one, not just because of story reasons, but because it's it's a lot easier for me to make a robot look good with a movement than a human character because humans move differently than robots. And I, I feel like it's it's a little bit easier to get away with animating with Transformers because you don't have to be as uh, precise to real life movements. There's, there's you know, it, it it's a little different. And then I also really love collecting mega constructs and animating with them because they're really small so I can collect a lot of them for a cheap amount um, and they're they're light and they're just articulated enough to where I can get all the movements I need out of them without taking up too much space and weighing too much on me. So it allows me to do more over the top things like in Crashed I was able to do characters doing jumps and a bunch of other over the top stuff because they don't weigh much and they're small I can get it all in camera in one frame and I can hold them up in the air without, you know, worrying about weights and worrying about, okay, if I slightly tap this, it's all going to come crashing down. All right, Daniel, your move. All right, fantastic. Well, I try my best to stay in the lane of six-inch figures, 112 scale specifically, because I feel like it's easier to manipulate, it's easier to work with, and they're usually more affordable than some of the bigger stuff, hell, even some of the smaller stuff. I'm now trying to look for more detailed sculpts and more accurate looking figures and, and their design because it's hard and it's in Under the Dark episode one where the Joker is a Mafex figure talking to a Mattel figure. They're the same scale, but they are very, very different in design and sculpt and detail. You're taking the Joker seriously because he's got all the nooks and crannies of his face painted. Then you cut back to the Mattel Rick Flag figure who just seems expressionless his face isn't really painted all that well and his eyes are a little wonky. So I'm trying to divert my uh, my budget to a little bit more, f- a bang for your buck, essentially. See, my ass is broke. <laughs> That's probably the best way to open my answer to the question. Um, I love collecting and I collect a lot of different things, but I typically try to buy what I need for projects, first and foremost, unless if it's just guilty pleasure purchases. I like collecting the screen-based Marvel Legends for my human characters because they're the most affordable. They're six-inch scale. I don't collect seven-inch scale, so that's why I don't have anything from uh, McFarland. But generally speaking, I like keeping continuity with the scale of figures that I'm working with, at least in terms of human scale. Uh, so even if I'm mixing different lines, like I have my first Mezco, I don't have any Mafex or SH figure arts, but I would collect stuff that's in that six inch scale and SHF would be kind of pushing it a little bit. In terms of Transformers, I like collecting the studio series and the movie based Transformers. Again, I like the realism a little bit more than the cartoony uh, classic style characters. I do collect some generations characters and i have in the past if i really like the characters and i liked mixing up different lines um i still wouldn't hesitate to back collect uh stuff from like transformers prime or the previous movie verse toy lines 
even though a studio series is kind of like the current status quo of the movie verse. Um, I like to keep consistency with my scale and with how the figures look in terms of what I'm collecting for my projects. Now, if it's just random collecting, I collect whatever I want to collect within reason if I can afford it. Um, but yeah, so for me, it's whatever's the most affordable and what I can use the most. I, I will say, like you, you mentioned how you primarily buy things for projects. I think the way I go now with collecting is unless it's some like a masterpiece that I just know I'm not going to animate with. Most of the things I buy when they get announced or when I see them, I go, okay, how can I fit this into a story? So I kind of do primarily buy to work on things, but that's because it's basically when I get something, I'm like, all right, how do I fit this into a project? You know, I, I feel like it's hard for me to just buy a figure just to have, like I have, I feel like once I get a figure, I need to throw it into something. It's like, all right, got this new action figure, this new transformer. All right, let me throw it in a video. You, know, let me you find have to a- constantly justify your purchases. Like, mm-hmm. I, I got this for a reason, damn it. Mm-hmm. Unless it's something, you know, like a masterpiece or something. Like, my Star Wars collection, I don't plan on really doing Star Wars animations anytime soon. But I got bought figures because I wanted them. But, like, with Transformers or things I do primarily animate with, I when I buy them or when they're announced, I'm like, all right, I want to fit these into things. And that's a good point, too. There is a balance between getting what you want to get for the sake of getting it versus how you can make it as useful as possible and being resourceful with it. Like sometimes you might want to get the latest and greatest version of a figure or of a character. And then there are other times where uh, you kind of work with what you got. So as a follow-up to this question, and I kind of already answered this, so I don't really have to say too much. And I think Daniel said too, Do you like to keep continuity with the figures that you're using or do you just use what's best, even if it means mixing things up? For me, it does vary sometimes, but I also like when I plan a project, you know, with some exceptions, like my Dark Energon series, that one is more movie based. So for the most part, minus a few exceptions, I try and keep movie figures only. But a lot of times when I'm working on projects, I don't I don't try and set it in a pre-established universe. Like if I'm doing a Marvel thing. I may like MCU stuff, but I'm not like, this isn't the MCU. So I kind of do what I just, what figures I want to use, what I think would look best for the story, regardless of line, regardless of scale, regardless of like, you know, uh, which company, Mayfex, Marvel Legends. It's just for me, what looks best. Like uh, with, you know, a Marvel series that may or may not come out, uh, reversion. Um, No, I'm using figures for that from all kinds of, you know, from comic figures to MCU figures for Marvel Legends, all the way to using um, like Mafex figure or SH figure figures, not Mafex. But um, it, it, again, yeah, it just depends on the project. It varies. But for the most part, it's just whatever figure I think looks best and fits the tone. Daniel, how about you? We've talked about this in, in uh, I think the last episode even, but you you mix and match try to work with illusion and forced perspective because they haven't released a 112 scale version of harleen quinzel from a line that i think would work really well for under the dark and therefore i had to look deeper and find and end up with the dc collectibles which is the seven inch harleen quinzel figure from the arkham games you have to mess with that and make it seem like She's obviously in the same scale as the Joker. And at the end of the day, you're just telling a story and that's all that should matter. And everything that you do should cater to the story. So it doesn't really matter what you have. It could be a seven inch Harleen Quinzel figure, or it could be a one eighteenth scale 
diet Pepsi van. I, I think, you know, as a director, if you can, you know, figure out how to get it to work in certain scales. Like when you watch Under the Dark, you can't tell that Harley and Quinzel is a completely different scale than the other figures. She fits in. And like, I noticed like uh, one video of mine, you know, my Rorschach video, uh, one of the biggest difficulties I had was Rorschach's a seven inch scale figure. Mm-hmm. And then the only other human characters I had were Marvel Legends. So I had to like kind of make it work. So like even some shots where it was above his waist or like where it was waist up, I would put so like I would maybe like stand the Marvel Legends on like a um on something so they'd be higher level or I'd like force perspective. Yeah, or I'd like force Rorschach to be a bit smaller. Uh I've it's just, you know, you gotta do it. And I think direct uh good enough directors can pull it off. Thanks. I kinda answered it before, but um for human based characters, I like to keep it to six inch if I can. And try to adhere to more screen-based, realistic-looking figures as much as I possibly can. Uh, unless if I'm diving into a more comic-based property and I'm trying to keep consistency with more comic-y-looking figures uh, within reason. Like, I have in the past mixed comic figures with MCU figures and not really cared. But if I have the option to keep things looking screen-realistic or keep things looking comic-aesthetic, I try to focus on which aesthetic fits the story and I try to cater the figures I'm using towards that purpose, generally speaking. Um, for Transformers, uh, it, 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 it's kind of a, I'm a little bit looser with the rules. So with scale, the scale could be completely different because you have Deluxe, Voyager, Leader, and you might have different scaling between those lines depending on um which franchise you're working with. Obviously, older figures are going to be a lot taller and bigger and bulkier than some of the newer figures. So it kind of depends on what version of that character best services the story, similar to what uh, Friendly said. And sometimes like what Daniel said, you kind of have to work with things from a different line because that's the version of the character you have. It's the closest to your story. And you just also like what Friendly said, if you're a good enough director, you can make the most of it. Like, for example, with uh, Transformers back in the day, I picked an Optimus Prime that felt less intimidating and more humbled and worn out for the Rebel side. But I'd want something a little bit more badass for the uh, um, the Optimus Prime side for a prequel if I wanted to be a little bit, um, you know, younger, more brutal and badass compared to something that's a little bit more jaded and aged. Yeah, all kind of all kind of it varies and it depends same with like the daredevils too like i mean i might use the marvel netflix daredevil for a certain darker version of the character but if i'm doing something maybe more goofy then i might use the comic version instead because it's a little bit brighter more vibrant it just kind of works a little bit better so it kind of you can look around at what you have and figure out what works best for the story you're trying to tell or you could be consistent it doesn't really matter now now to to uh to uh preventative measure to uh, act proactively let's quickly uh bang out the last three points here okay some creators rely on only one device for their film needs while others utilize multiple so cell phone or tablet cameras have improved a lot over time but some prefer a dedicated camera like a camcorder or a dslr do you have a preference for which to shoot with typically or does it vary for the project uh mostly 
I do have a preference for my uh, DSLR, my Canon T6 Rebel, and that's just because I it it gets the best color, it gets the best lighting. It just it it's the one I feel the most comfortable with. I think gets the best picture quality and gets the best visuals that I want. But I do, you know, I still have things I've used everything from stop motion studio to just taking pictures with my phone to taking pictures with other cameras. And I do like, I still keep things on my phone because sometimes I need to swap it up. You know, sometimes if I want to do a shot that requires a little bit more camera movement, I might switch to my phone because it's hard to, you know, move a big bulky camera around. So then I use my smaller phone and get some more of that dynamic movement. Sometimes, you know, like for instance, with my Christmas video, my SD card uh, broke in the middle of production. I didn't have a second one. And the one I uh, the one I ordered was going to take a while to ship. So I filmed the rest of it with my phone because I had that on the time. So it, it does depend on the, um, I guess, the, the project. But I do tend to gravitate more towards my DSLR. It just looks the best. I, I go old school with the celluloid film. It's a bitch to work with, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh... I, I just have the DSLR, the, the Nikon D5100, and I like that because it's it's what's uh, I've been most comfortable with it. You know, in the past, I have worked on mobile and nothing against mobile, but it just wasn't the most comprehensive thing. A, you're taking up space on that device, and B, what, the older devices weren't exactly the most high quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the DSLR is my go-to, uh, and it's easier that way because... You know, for a smaller space, you can make the most out of it by making it look big because you're trying to capture on a photography camera what you would try to capture on an actual film camera that would photograph actual sets. I, I like the the illusion part of things and I like making a set look bigger than it actually is or a a limited space look larger on camera than it would while working on it. And I take advantage of that and I try to make sure that Again, it's all in service of the uh, of the story and trying to make it resonate as best as possible for the audience, even though you're not really maneuvering around uh, such comfortable, much less reasonable predicaments. You know, it's not it's not it's not easy trying to do whip pans with a DSLR mm-hmm. in a six inch <laughs> in a six inch environment. I was gonna say that my answer is also yet again shocker of the year. It, it varies. varies. Um, we we need to make merch. I know, right? Just a shirt that says it varies. Um, I've been fortunate to use several different kinds of cameras um, in live action and stop motion filmmaking. And personally, if I owned a DSLR, that would probably be my initial go-to. But again, I am broke, so that's not really in the cards right now. I currently use a Canon Vixia, which is a uh, like a camcorder type, which is actually still pretty good. You get a bunch of manual features built in with it. So it functions kind of like a DSLR without the swappable lenses. So you, I still have that camera filming experience and I have filmed with DSLRs for stop motion before, even though I don't own one personally. But there's also a complexity with filming with a camera. Yes, you're getting the crispest image possible you get that crispy focus you get uh you get a bunch of different angles you can zoom more easily there's a lot of advantages to it but at the same time unless if you can afford dragon frame or a program that has 
uh, onion skinning as a feature, it's it's a little bit tricky to just kind of eyeball it and do it freehand with a phone or a, a camera like that that's on a mobile device. Depending on the size of that device, you might be able to maneuver it through crowded spaces a little bit more. You might be able to get more dynamic camera angles. You might not have to be fixed on a tripod. It's a lot smaller. It's a lot more uh, easy to just kind of shift around your characters and your set pieces. And the onion skinning is incredibly tempting. Sometimes you might be lazy enough to just use the uh, built-in green screen, like the live green screen feature, rather than doing that in post-production. There's a bunch of different things you can utilize with a phone that you might not be able to with a DSLR or a camera, and the same could be said for the opposite. So it's the right tool for the job for me. Um, I, I love using both equally, although it would be nice to actually afford a DSLR camera at some point. Onion skinning is a it's a big help, but someone like me who didn't really have it much when I started, and it, I've just I've kind of adapted to. I would love to have it on my DSLR. But, you know, I unfortunately don't have the money for something like Dragon Frame. I, I have adapted to not having it, but I, I do think one of the worst feelings in the world is when you're filming something and your figure falls. You don't have onion skinning, so you just got to eyeball it and hope for That's the best. That's my favorite part. <laughs> Especially if you have camera movement in addition to oh, figure movement. It's the worst thing. It's actually easier to hide figure flaws when you've dropped them with camera movement because so much can change in the span mm-hmm. of that pan. So I that try to mask true. my flaws in quick camera movements, which is why if I'm zooming in or zooming out, it tends to hide a lot of the discrepancies. Camera companies really need to get on building a built-in onion skin feature. Like if a, if Canon or Sony or Nikon, if they just went ahead and they built in an onion skin feature for stop motion animators into that DSLR, that would be my immediate go-to Uh because that would change the game for creators like us. Um, it's also good to mention, by the way, that different cameras can evoke different feelings. So if you're trying to film on a phone and you're trying to capture more of that surrounding, because you know it's very, it captures a lot of what you can on camera. Because a phone camera tries to uh, tries to emulate the feeling of having a real camera while having perks of its own. So when you try to shoot with that you get more image and picture versus when you're trying to shoot like i joked about it earlier but on film shooting on film or whether you're shooting on black and black and white it evokes very different emotions so yeah director's director's vision and creative creative liberty yeah as a follow-up do you like to use whatever camera works best for a shot or do you always stay with the same camera i think we kind of answered this um, I mean, but your thoughts, uh, I kind of did, you know, I mentioned like sometimes if I need a little bit more camera movement, I might switch to my phone. Genuinely, I do try and stay with the DSLR, but sometimes it's a little bigger and it's it weighs a lot. So it's really hard to get it on. a Even if you get it on a smaller tripod, it won't be low to the ground. So smaller things to animate with can get a little difficult with a big, um, you know, clunky camera like that. And, you know, if I want to have like some like the DSLR isn't as much fun when you're trying to do some like one take or long take scene and you want your camera to move around through things, then that's where it becomes a problem of, oh, boy, how do I how do I lug this giant thing through my set here? So then I might swap to my phone that that's or a smaller device project. Yeah, because I know some creators like to 
use the same device throughout the entire project and mm. then they might do a different device for a different project and they keep the consistency with that one camera they use while other people kind of like me um i might use different cameras in the same project in hell during nomad uh the original shoot and even during the uh reshoots i'm going to be doing soon um i might be using the camcorder and the phone at the same time i might be shooting from different camera angles back to back and i might have the phone on like a, a custom lego rig on wheels that can push in while i have the uh camcorder on a static tripod at a much more unique angle like uh with nomad i had an aerial angle and i had a floor angle that would push in uh to get kind of closer in on the action so you could get the fight choreography from two different perspectives and it would cut from one into the other and i thought that was kind of fun so it kind of used the right tool for the right job um once again for me at least uh, Daniel, do you have anything to add? Do I, you? I, I wanted to, yeah, I was going to talk about lenses, different lenses that you could use, which also emulate uh, different emotions and moods for your uh, for your set. Some would th with more focus or less focus, but you also got to consider how big the lens is because bigger lenses means less set space. But what if the bigger lens is what's best for the shot or best for the scene? So it's... Yeah, it's a tricky thing to work around, but I go back, I keep going back to this point. You work with what's best for the project, what's best for the vision, and what's best for the narrative. So, yeah, just work with it. Well said. All right. Uh, good news. We're officially on the last point, and I think this will be a pretty easy one. To tie the figures and cameras together for a question, which figure lines are harder for you to capture on camera? Ones that are bigger or ones that are smaller? All right. See, I feel like I have a hot take with this question most people i talk to they prefer you know bigger like six inch and up style animating with and i can kind of get that but for me i'm the opposite i really enjoy like animating with the little halo figures is a blast to me because i don't have a lot of space and i don't have you know the most the best rigs and all this stuff so when you're animating with a smaller figure they weigh less and they take up less space so I can have more detailed sets. I can have, you know, bigger scaled action scenes and I can have them do more creative things because I they they weigh less. So, you know, I'm not worried about my rig falling over or something like that, where with bigger figures, it's harder for me to have them do things or to get them in scale because I got to shrink down my sets a lot. And I know it's like when it comes to, you know, bigger figures, I have to do a lot more you know, close-ups and a lot, like a lot, of, I can't be as creative with my cinematography because there's just no room. You know, I can't, I can't show a cool, you know, shot with all the characters standing up, you know, seeing their full body because they're too big. It doesn't get in the, you know, full camera. Where with little figures, I can do all kinds of creative cinematography that isn't just, all right, let me get closer to them. Let me shoot them from the waist up. Let me do medium shots. Let me, you know what I mean? Um, and then the only downside, though, with little figures is you do got to like, I mean, I the, the ones I got were cheap, but you definitely need some like macro lenses or something like that, because re just a regular lens won't pick them up that well, because you do got to get close with the camera. Um, for me, that's not a problem for what I, I do, because I don't have a lot of space. So my camera is close to my figures regardless. But for I, I can understand why not all animators are like that. I do, however, yeah, I, just, I prefer the smaller 
smaller scale figures. My issue is not so much the figure that I'm working with or figures. It's mostly in the camera itself and how I position it. Because, you know, you can easily, again, force perspective is your biggest friend when it comes to stop motion animation. Hell, with any kind of art, force perspective is great because you have a just, you know, you can have a giant man scene with a, a six inch Ant-Man figure. But if you shot it from if you did like a an overhead shot so that it would look like he's bigger than everyone else or in front of a green screen, you can always manipulate that in post. So it's more so how it looks than how it actually performs on camera, because, again, bigger, smaller, doesn't really matter. Uh, you got to take into account, though, that smaller things have because there's very little room for error with how small it is. You can capture every detail in that. We talked about that in Hollywood at home, where a small van could be mistaken for a small van because it is a small van. So you got to fake it till you make it and make people believe that it's not actually a matchbox vehicle. Um, and uh, bigger things are harder to animate. You got to exaggerate more things to capture more of that on camera. Smaller things, you got to tone it back a little bit. So yeah, it's it's in the creator and the camera, I think, is where the challenge lies. So for me, I, I think there's a balance between the two. There are pros and cons that both are kind of form an equal measure and it's ultimately a matter of personal opinion as to which one's ultimately the preferred one. I think smaller in scale is harder to work with when moving pieces around and getting good focus and lighting because of how small the subjects are and also the potential for them to be like easily knocked over because they don't have a lot of weight or balance necessarily. Um, but then if you're working with things that are too big, you have no space left to work with and you can't really move the camera around because things are uh, too tight with how big the subjects are. You're not going to have really good set pieces because of how big the subjects are. Um, it's going to be impossible to pull off any kind of dynamic camera angles or movement, especially with multiple characters in frame, unless if you're doing some heavy duty compositing uh, in post-production to make it happen. So for me personally, I like working with stuff that's kind of in the middle. But if I had to pick a preference, I'd rather work with something that's a little bit on the smaller side because I'd rather have bigger set pieces and I'd rather have more space to make things work um, than have no room wh whatsoever to operate in uh, in terms of where the camera can go and where the sets can be made and how big they can be in correlation to the characters because scale is important between the characters or the subjects as well as whatever they're interacting with in their environment such as uh, props or sets or things like vehicles um, that's why 112 scale vehicles are so special we were just talking about the the uh the little van it would have been impossible without compositing to make that shot work because of the scale between the different figures and working with that little miniature van was a little bit of a pain in the ass because of the wheels being harder to kind of move because of how small they were, at least for me and my fingers. Um, but also working with something that's enormously ginormous, uh, like the, uh, the, the, um, the slambulance, which is a one scale vehicle. That thing is huge. So working with something like Transformers vehicles, they're like a pretty comfortable scale to work with. They're just the right size. But I'd rather work with something that's a little bit smaller 
in terms of camera movement and set design and work with something bigger in terms of um, camera lenses and focusing on them and getting better movement, making it a little bit easier to maneuver the characters and subjects around. Yeah. Um, so I think that might just about be a wrap on this episode. Man, we had a lot of good stuff to talk about this time. Thank you so much for being here. We just crossed the two hour threshold. I, I was glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, MK. Well, actually, he was hounding us about uh, when we would record this. Y- y- you were the one, in fact. MK, you were the one, in fact, who were like saying, so when are we recording the podcast? Why are we recording my episode of the podcast? Where, where, where we uh, on that note, I'm, I'm going to just leave. I'm going to go off the back door. <laughs> I think that's a... Uh, but yeah, that, you're right. That's a wrap on episode 10 for this podcast. Thank you for listening to anyone and everyone who might be tuning in right now or in a decade's time. And real quick before we go, uh, please feel free to check out all of our social media links. If you're watching on YouTube, they've been on screen. If not, we do have a bunch of different places where you can find all of our social media handles. And in addition to uh, checking out our content, uh, which feel free to do that at your own discretion. Uh, if you want to hear more from us personally, uh, feel free to join our Discord server, the Animators Assembled server, where you can interact with us uh, personally on a more one-on-one basis or a big group basis. Uh, we're planning on having a lot more stuff going on in that server now because admittedly it's been a little bit on the quieter side. I can vouch. Quality server. Yeah, feel free to join us. We're going to be doing a lot of fun stuff. But yeah, if uh, on the off chance y'all don't catch us in the server, there are several episodes that preceded this one, so please listen to those. Feel free to check there those are, out. There were a lot we of uh, put a lot of blood, blood sweat, sweat, and tears, tears into these. Poured into those episodes. Yeah, it got so bad that now, it, like Dale and I have spent so much time together at this point on this stupid podcast that uh, we we could predict each other's sentences now. Uh, so to close things off, I think we should play another game because we do end up. Doing these closeouts a little, you know, we're we're going overboard anyway. So why why not waste more time? So uh, we're gonna do a game of two truths and a lie, Project Edition. Wait, so what are we trying to what are we trying to guess for uh, MK? Or is it is it Crash? It's Crash, but I'm trying trying to come up with things. So I guess we're just jotting down notes, going down the through the production of Crashed. That that it's hard because I've already told you and Daniel like majority of the behind the scenes stuff with crashed so uh do i just say like hey two truths in the line just start listing them yeah and we have to figure out which one's a lie so you say three statements and then we have to figure out which one of the three is a lie all right so yeah two truths in a lie first one is the video is based off a already it's a hack the whole video is just copied off of another halo video uh the second one is originally i was going to kill off the red Spartan, but I fell in love with him too much in production. So that's why he survives getting shot. And then the final one is originally the set was going to be way bigger and they were going to go to multiple locations and there was going to be like a whole scene with, you know, driving and all that. But then I said, screw that and just kept it at the one little location. Second one's bullshit. I feel like the first one's bullshit. I mean, this is two out of three. I feel like one of us has to be right. Yeah. Unless yeah, we're both I, wrong. I, I think Crash was an original. I, I I think you said back in the day that Crash was an original thing. I believe the fact that the set was going to be bigger. Um, and I also believe that you fell in love with the Red Spartan. You, I think you told me that specifically. Um, 
but the first one i don't think it was based on anyone else i, I feel like i should know this if i if i end up getting this one wrong i'm not a true fan of crash so i have to keep that title i feel like so are those your final answers yeah mine's locked suffer me so i'm gonna start by saying the third one is 100 percent true because originally there was going to be a whole section where they got in a warthog and drove to it but i realized it was too big of a scale for what i was trying to do so both of us didn't screw that one up. No. Now it's a matter of whether or not you're wrong or I'm wrong. Oh, God. I, in, one, in my lie, I told a partial truth. The overall thing is a lie. And that is, I was never intending to kill the Red Spartan. <gasps> However, I did fall in love with him uh, way more than I planned on. But no, he was always intended to survive. Okay. All right. That's fair. The first thing, I never, I didn't copy another person's video. It's, Michael, I've showed you. The inspiration is based off the Halo 2 cutscene, Another Day at a Beach. <laughs> so did I get that right? They, we, yeah, Daniel got it right. The Let's crash go! Scent. I thought you were saying it was based off like another person's no, video. No, I meant it was I'm just like, based no, off. No, it wasn't based on another I, I person. Showed, All right. The, I thought you were going to get it, Michael, because I showed you the video it was based off of. The whole uh, guy's take it scene where he has the sword to the dude is taken from that video uh, another day at a beach uh, man i'm ecstatic i got that correct uh true fan I, i'm i'm glad i lost that one because i i'm not the truest fan of crashed yeah i i, so. I love crashed it's uh it's fucking cinema all right who, who's going next his eye i go next okay so two truths and one lie about batman under the dark episode one Batman Under the Dark Episode 1 features a use of the volume technique famously seen in shows like The Mandalorian and about to be seen in films like Thor Love and Thunder. Batman Under the Dark features a Wilhelm scream. And Batman Under the Dark is the first project I've ever collaborated on with Stealthabot, Forgotten Tactic, and War TV 14 all as voice acting talent. That's the lie. You think so? I know so. It's it's not the first project you collaborate with me on. Now maybe the other two, like for Charles, Forgotten Tactic, I that one that's true. Warren probably true, but I know for a fact that we worked on the Ant Man project first, so you couldn't have included me in there, knowing that. Uh, I'll take that as your final answer, even though I didn't generalize it as a like individual thing, but you as a group. Okay, all right. Well, that's different then. Here's the thing: I don't remember the Wilhelm scream, so I'm gonna go with number two. I, I do not remember the Wilhelm scream. I also don't remember the Wilhelm scream. I feel like that would be way too tacky. I think I joked about you including it, but I don't think you actually did. I'm trying to think of... But see, I also can't even think of a scene where the Wilhelm scream would have fit. Giggles is death. You used I mean, random I'm not, stocks. I'm out. not saying that I oh, didn't... Oh, so you want, our you want our final answers first. I do yeah. not recall you using the Wilhelm, though. Yeah. And technically, the I second mean, one's could, a lie. You could, you could say it's a lie. You can say it's a lie. They're both lies. That's the problem, I feel like. Really? I, I got to stick with the Wilhelm. Plus, I remember Daniel talking about how far back Under the Dark went. So that's another thing where it was like, I, I can believe it would be the first project that all three of you guys would work on. So I, I've got to stick with the Wilhelm scream. I, I'm going to say the Wilhelm scream just because you justified the third answer. What is it? Well, y'all got it right. Yes! I was like, bullshit. Okay. I told you to yeah. use the Wilhelm screen. You're like, no, exactly. that's too tacky. That's All right. Nomad trivia. I don't know a lot about the behind the scenes of Nomad like I do of Under the Dark. Well, I've talked about these on the podcast. So if you listen to the podcast, all of these can be found in the podcast. He's like, fuck. <laughs> Nomad's fight scene was shot and edited within 24 hours and featured multiple cameras in use at the same time for efficiency. Nomad was inspired by a song parody I wrote of the song by Jeremy Renner, 
which led to me making the project. Nomad was going to feature sequences or spin-offs for Falcon reliving the death of Riley and Black Widow getting ambushed by Red Guardian and Yelena Belova. I think the last one is a lie, and it's also because the Black Widow movie hadn't released a trailer yet. And, like, uh, Nomad came out before the first trailer of Black Widow, so I I don't know if you would go into characters like Red the Guardian figures, at that point. The figures were available. Like, they, you could buy the figures. The Black Widow wave came out in 2020, I thought. No, it didn't. It came out in August of... Hold on. <laughs> MK's like, dude, we've been bamboozled. Right, I'm going to stick with that one because the wave didn't release until December. And I remember I I remember you talking about the first two privately. I swear I did. So I'm going to have to go with the third one. The third one is absolutely a lie because you had you did not want to touch on the Black Widow stuff because the movie hadn't come out yet. No, actually. No, that was true. That was true. You both got it wrong. Um, Nomad was in fact going to feature sequences for uh, Falcon reliving the death of Riley, uh, that one in particular, and Black Widow was going to get ambushed by uh, Red Guardian from the comics and a Yelena Belova figure. The correct answer was two. Nomad was not inspired by the song parody I wrote. I wrote a song parody after the fact. Oh, that's... See, that's... Because... Michael, you had a you had very much had a conversation with me and Darren about the song, so I was like, okay, that for sure is not the lie. See, I don't feel as bad for getting it wrong because I didn't work on the project. Yeah, that's a little sad. You might have you might have kept your uh, <laughs> title of uh, Crashed Simp, but you lost your title of good uh, co-collaborator. Damn. Okay. <laughs> Cut the check. <laughs>